Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. My colleague and Energy Program Director Sarah Ladislaw recently had the chance to sit down with Gina McCarthy, former EPA Administrator under President Obama, and now the Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard School for Public Health. Gina was at CSIS to open the Global Cooling Prize Conference, which looked at how we can develop and move breakthrough cooling technologies to the global market to help combat climate change. Let's turn it over to Sarah and Gina now. Uh, Administrator McCarthy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks. Great. So you came to CSIS today to participate in the launch of the Global Cooling Prize, which is essentially a prize that looks at trying to provide residential cooling solutions, technological solutions that you scale up in order to meet the rising demand for that without exacerbating climate change. Why do you think that's such an important challenge? Because of everything you just said. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just think it's important to recognize that, you know, one out of three people live in areas where the heat is, is just intolerable today. But that's going to get worse. You're going to have more people exposed to that heat as the climate changes. And we have to recognize that they have every right to live safe and healthy lives. So we want them to have an ability to keep cool. And the, if the only way to give them that ability is to use HFCs that will contribute to global warming, if the only way we can do that is to give them the most inefficient piece of equipment, <laughs> then we are, you know, hoisting our own patad, as my mother would have said. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it. so we need solutions that, that are building on a healthy, more just, and equitable future. We don't need to rely on the past to tell us how to dictate our future. And that's what this is all about. We need innovation. We need to spark it. We need to talk about solutions, not problems. And we need to recognize that if we fail to do that, thousands of lives could be lost and will inevitably be lost if we don't take action. And it could be well more than that. And and I don't know about you, but that's not the future that I, I want to be in or I want anyone else to be in just so that I can have my air conditioning. It's just not going to work for me. And I think most people would agree that that we have to care about one another. We have to recognize our moral responsibility, and we have to act. Yeah. And that's what this is. Since leaving Washington, you've gone up to Harvard. You now run something called the Center for Climate Health and Global Environment, Sea uh, Change, which brings a public health lens very prominently to the challenge of global climate change. Can you talk about what you're doing in that program to advance that That. Yeah. I mean, sea change is all about looking at the science of climate and looking at the implications to public health of the changes that we're seeing and try to make that information available to people. Mm -hmm. So we're doing things like working with the Transportation and Climate Initiative that is a nine-state effort in the Northeast and beyond in the mid-Atlantic states to take a look at how you develop new policies. How do you... Invest in new technology strategies that will enhance transportation in a way that's going to lower the carbon footprint. And the challenge with that is that, or the opportunity really, is that we know that transportation is directly related to air pollution. When you're driving fossil fuels, you know, and that's what's providing energy to your vehicles, you're going to be emitting pollution, and that pollution can impact a lot of it is kids. We now know that about 
about one in four kids today are exposed to significant levels of air pollution, and they are going to be developing asthma as a result of that. So the whole idea is really, let's look at at these climate opportunities through a health lens. So if I'm going to be putting electric vehicles out and about like electric buses, put them in areas that need public transportation and put them in areas where the air quality is the worst. Let's get the biggest twofer we can get out of this. Plus, it, it makes people realize that Climate change isn't about someone else, and the solutions don't have to come from some far away place. It can really come from ourselves, our community, our homes. Because part of the challenge we face today is that you know the federal government isn't in this game right now. It isn't looking at what they can do, which means that each of us has to pick it up. And in many ways, that's how environmental challenges have been fixed. That's how public challenges have been addressed, is one community as a time at a time. So so our really, I think our strength is to identify the health benefits and the health opportunities to try to drive climate solutions that benefit health today on the way to a more sustainable future, and to make sure that those who are most vulnerable to pollution, like carbon pollution that fuels climate change, are the ones that get invested in first. Because I just think that's the way to build and broaden constituency base for climate and make it real make it actionable, and make it solvable for everybody. You uh, you mentioned the role of the federal government at present. Yeah. And under the Obama administration, you were one of the strongest among a number of champions for really pioneering some climate leadership. And because of your position, but also because of the partisan nature around climate change, regulation played a really big role in that. And under this administration, we've seen a lot of that regulatory behavior or some of those rules that were promulgated either be pulled back or questioned or, you know, uh, litigated. What do you think the impact of that has been? Because I hear both things, right? One is, gosh, the impacts of not having the federal government lead is really detrimental to the cause. But at the same time, people say, you know, people in industry, people in civil society, they see this for the opportunity that it is. How do you think about what's going on now in that sort of lack of federal leadership? Well, you know, I have to say I can't help but be disappointed in it because I do think as a country we need to actually be at the table with other countries. This is a worldwide planetary issue. But on the other hand, you know, I just don't think we're losing a lot of ground right now because because people are taking up the mantle now. You know, one of the maybe one of the challenges that we faced is is during the Obama administration we were doing a lot at the federal level. Maybe that didn't incent cities to step up as much as they could have or individual communities. And so right now, you know, as the with the federal government not playing, you're seeing a lot of activity among mayors. You're seeing more than 350 of them who have pledged to stick with the Paris Agreement. You're seeing 23 states that have said the same thing. You're seeing leadership at state levels that I've never seen before and wouldn't have guessed. I mean, look at the Western U.S. You've got New Mexico and Nevada leading the way, Colorado. The world's turned on its head in a really good way. <laughs> good way. So while we can bemoan the fact that there's no federal leadership here, you know, I still do a lot of and have a lot of discussions with the UN and with other countries, and we travel a lot. And I think people recognize that we're in a little bit of a 
how should I politely say it, funky situation right now in the U.S., but they also see that so much is happening. And many of us who have been working on these issues for a long time, we have just no intention of backing off. In fact, we're we're sort of amping it up because if the federal government doesn't want to act, the rest of us has to. One of the things that I've noticed, we're early in a new campaign cycle. We've got a new, you know, Congress um, that's kind of put the focus back on at least the climate dialogue, right? And two things interesting have kind of popped out to me. One is uh, this this um, confidence in our ability to innovate, which I think is yes. positive, and then the focus on inequality in vulnerable yes. communities. Yes. You talk a lot about that. I, I mean, do. How do you think that both that innovation mindset and the focus on vulnerable communities might change the, re- the reality for how we're acting on these problems? Well, I think we need to stop being afraid of climate change and be realistic that the world's changing and then figure out how we adapt to that. And, and I think part of the adaptation needs to be a recognition that fossil fuels can't be what powers the future. It's powered the past, but we're not in the past anymore. We're looking at a future where we really need to get to zero carbon. That's what the science is telling us. And so the issue needs to be how do you shift from making people afraid of what we used to do to sort of running to a future that's better. And so in in my world, I think health is a, a significant driver. It's always been, you know, I've worked for environmental agencies now for about 40 years. And, and nobody did anything for birds and bunnies. They did it for themselves and their kids. And if we make it clear that climate change is about us and it's personal, you can begin to engage people much more directly, not just in, in recognizing the problem, but in really investing in solutions. And that's what we need to do. We need our markets to shift. We need clean energy to continue, which it is, but continue faster and broader. And we need that broader engagement. And to me, health is an entree to that discussion, but it also is the easiest way that I know to make the case that equity is important in this discussion, that there are people that have been left behind, and those are the people that are suffering. You know, those one out of four kids that are going to develop asthma are doing that simply because their parents lived along roadways. How fair is that? You know, what do we do better? We know that that when people are poor, they live in substandard housing. We know that they don't eat well. They can't bounce back from, from exposure to pollution. We know that 9 million people across the world are die every year prematurely because of exposure to pollution. 92% of them live in low and middle income countries. And we have one out of 10 kids in the US that have asthma, two out of 10 Hispanic kids. That's not genetic. So if you look at the health issues, it's blaringly obvious that there are vulnerable communities that have been left behind, that it's because they're biologically different, which is what our kids are. They're more susceptible to impacts from pollution. Same with the elderly, especially when you talk about heat. And then we know that there are, you know, poor communities that that continue to suffer many indignities. And the cool thing is not just to recognize it, but to recognize that if you really think clearly about a path forward and you put equity into that equation, you have an opportunity to build your economy in a much stronger, more just and equitable way. Why wouldn't you want the communities that are left behind to actually be built up so that the economy as a whole is stronger? 
and that there is there's less reason for people to migrate to different places, which means there's fewer instability. There are so many benefits to a smart climate strategy that looks at health and equity that all I keep doing is talking about it, which is why I decided to go to the School of Public Health so I wouldn't be quite as obnoxious. <laughs> People would expect it then, right? Absolutely. And so we meet with journalists. We talk about them and say, stop putting polar bears behind you when you talk about climate change. I'm tired of seeing glaciers collapse, collapsing into the ocean. That means nothing to people everywhere. You know, all it means is that it's someplace far away that I and I can't stop that glacier. So we have to get real and we have to talk about working with scientists to communicate effectively. We have to bring health into every conversation in equity because both matter equally and both will drive you to different decisions and decisions that will broaden constituencies because people will be getting into the act right away if you allow them to be healthier. And then the demands will be greater and I think the world will be a better place. What the hell's wrong with that? <laughs> nothing, nothing at all, <laughs> nothing. You know, I, you've, you've said it a number of times, you have nothing against polar bears, no. but as you said, you don't want them to be sort of the icon, the figure of the climate change it, movement. And That's right. You prefer your, your I actually your children, feel really right? badly and, when I see them floating out on an ice sheet. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't, right. But I, I think that it just implies a remoteness. It re implies a disconnect, and it sort of disempowers in many ways. I, I will say, and I've done this for many years, and, and one of the things that's been striking to me is how much the children's school strike and the view of children actually being involved in enabling their voices in this has really made a difference to a lot of people kind of recognizing that this is a generational issue and that younger generations are recognizing it's an unmitigated problem. That's right. What, what do you say to kids who are starting to think about and be active on this issue? Because you, I mean, yeah. you have a couple important roles to play, not only just to deliver messages, but you've also thought about enacting policy, right? I mean, we have to yeah. shift this giant yeah. ship of the economy to do these different things. And I think that these kids approach this from a really genuine place. And and I, I struggle sometimes with trying to think about what to do with all that energy, you know? And, and so yeah. what, what do you yeah. say to, you know, newly, uh, uh, new converts to sort of the climate change concept to, to where to direct that energy? Well, a part of the reason why I'm here for this announcement is because it's young people that are going to design the solutions of the future. So I try to tell them, instead of being so angry about what hasn't been done, let's demand what can be done or what should be done or could be done and design that future. They, they are the ones that are going to be the sort of the recipient of our future. And they're going to really trounce all over us if we're in the way. And, and what, what is most fun is I spend a lot of my time, you know, talking to the students at Harvard who are really uh, focused on these issues tremendously. But I also spend a lot of time focused on people my age, I'm 65, and telling them that they have to get with the program and understand that it's not about incremental change anymore. That window of opportunity passed, that they have to be comfortable with change. Mm -hmm. 
that change is happening whether we like it or not, here it comes, right? And so we have to make sure that that change is for the better and not the worse. And you can't just sit around thinking that this is a phase and it's going to go away and the earth's going to be just fine and we don't need to do anything about it. It's just not happening that way. And so, so I spend a lot of time explaining to older people while they have to act like younger people. <laughs> like, we're trying. Stop we're being trying. impatient. You know, I tell them to get out their old, their old T-shirts and bell bottoms and go march. Because really, it's amazing what's happening today. Yeah. I just think we haven't stepped back and said, wow, we're marching again. We haven't marched for ages. You know, there is something here that is such a positive energy, not scary, but an energy that should make us wake up and realize that that we, we in many ways have gotten way too complacent and haven't understood how quickly life changes, except when I remind people that they can't figure out how to turn on their TV <laughs> or work their cell phones or get back that document they just blew off their, their, their laptop <laughs> until they ask their kids what to do. You know, then you realize, oh, my God, life has changed. Yeah. So I remind them that the first Earth Day might have seemed like a long time ago, but we're coming up on the 50th anniversary. And how much progress did we make on pollution during that period of time? Don't tell me we haven't learned enough to make similar progress in 20 years on climate change, because it's nothing but carbon pollution, which I like to spell it C-A-H-B-O-N for those <laughs> who may not That's understand my Boston accent. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, Change has been happening at a pace that's unparalleled, and you can't hide and think that it's going to stop. You can't be afraid of change. You really just need to embrace it and understand that young people today are not going to tolerate a slow pace. They are going to demand change. They're comfortable with it. You know, our goal is to, is to just, I think, support them in every, any way that we can to make sure that it's done in, in a way where everybody gets to play. Get everybody's voices. That's what democracy is about. I don't think it's about one you know, person thinking they know it all, including one young person who knows it all. It's about recognizing that you had students uh, in the Parkland School that I think are the model. Uh, they are they should have provided incredible inspiration to the rest of us. I mean, they made a governor that I knew. Um, I met with who I would have guaranteed you would never sign a gun bill in his life. And he signed it. And he signed it because they made it happen. And if the rest of us don't join them in that, we're so missing the boat. And so it might be exhausting to try to keep up with these young people, but I'm running as fast as my little fat legs can carry me. <laughs> you're doing a great job. Gina uh, McCarthy, your, your energy is infectious, and I just want to say thank you so much for spending the time to talk with us today. Well, you're doing a great thing here, and I think innovation is it. I think we can craft a future that's better for everyone, and, and I'm all in. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Energy 360. You can find a link to the Global Cooling Prize event on our website and find more episodes of Energy 360 on iTunes or at CSIS.org. And as always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks. <laughs>